Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Seals. And I'm Julian Hockman, joining remotely today. And I love that you're joining remotely. Uh, you're actually in the middle of traveling, but you're calling in, which is uh, ironic because the episode here with Tony Award-winning director Christopher Ashley uh, was also done over the phone. He's currently on the West Coast at the La Jolla Playhouse, where he's the artistic director, um, gearing up for Diana in the middle of rehearsals. He actually stepped out of rehearsal for an hour to give me the phone call, so, so I thank him very much for that. Um, and, and just an incredible individual, got his Broadway director directorial start in 99, has done like so many different genres and, uh, you know, types of shows, um, some of which uh, has a special place in your heart, right, Jillian? Yes. Uh, back in 2004, there was a show called All Shook Up, which was an Elvis Street Box musical that Christopher directed. And that was the show that made me fall in love with Broadway. Um, they, he also did another show in 2007 called Xanadu based on the 80s movie, um, which is another favorite of mine. And these were the shows that really kind of propelled me through my teenage years and and made me fall in love with the art form. So, uh, so we have Christopher Ashley to thank for uh, my side of the podcast here, uh, because he is the reason why I love Broadway. (laughs) Um, yeah, He's done so many shows that I've that I have been following for a long time, and then most recently, Come From Away, and then uh, Escape to Margaritaville. Come From Away, uh, of course, the musical about 9/11, what happened in Gander, Newfoundland, during 9/11, and uh, now it's getting getting made into a a movie, which I'm very excited about. But he was sort of. Um, I guess unintentionally cagey about details because there probably aren't that many yet. Yeah, that happens a lot of times with musicals turning into movies. But fingers yeah. crossed, we will get that soon. <laughs> um, it was interesting to me to to hear him talk about, I guess, how directors get attached to shows because I'm I I've dealt I've talked more with producers, I guess, and producers seem to always have a director that they go to or or a, you know a group of directors that they know they can trust, they know they can go to. And um early in your career when you don't have that reputation, when you don't have those relationships with with people, you know, how do you get attached and it, it's it seems like it's almost as hard of hard of work to to get cast as a or to get hired as a director as as it is to get cast as an actor in the same show. Yeah, uh, directing, especially when you're young, um, you need to build that reputation. And so some of the early shows he did had some uh, questionable producers and and creative sides attached to it as he tells the story later. Um, It's a great story. Um, We won't spoil it for you here, though, but listen for the mafia. (laughs) And and how to react to something uh, unexpected in a hot tub. (laughs) (laughs) How to react to a dead body. Somebody knows. (laughs) <laughs> so everybody, please enjoy this episode with Tony Award-winning director Christopher Ashley. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Today's guest is a three-time Tony nominee who won the Tony for Best Direction in Come From Away. So far, he's directed nine shows on the Broadway stage, including some of my personal all-time favorites like All Shook Up, Memphis, and of course, Come From Away. He's directed feature films and is still the artistic director of the La Jolla Playhouse. Christopher Ashley, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you for having me. So I want to I want to start off, of course, where we always start off with this podcast, and I want to talk about your humble beginnings. Um, where did you grow up, and what kind of child were you? Humble is the right word. Uh, I grew up <laughs> in 17 different places before I went to college. So born in Chicago, lived in North Carolina, hadn't had a really thick accent as a little kid. No kidding. Uh, upstate New York, Portugal, London, Michigan, Maine, pretty much all over. Wow. So why did you move around so much? My parents were young and just getting out of grad school, so I was uh, quickly divorced. So I was bopping around between postgraduate gigs, and my mom had a grant to be in Portugal for a couple of years. Uh, my dad did a teaching um, gig of trading professorships in London. So uh, I pretty much followed my parents uh, through their early career. Wow. What part of North Carolina did you live in? I'm just curious because I live there too. Durham. Oh yeah, I was. Yeah. I went to college at NC State. Was Raleigh Durham kid for about eight years. Yeah. Yeah. So I've uh, Beth level. We we uh, commiserated over our Raleigh experience. It was wonderful. I don't, you don't need to commiserate with me. I had a fantastic time. <laughs> I guess commiserate is the wrong word. I I do I do like it, but uh, sorry for all North Carolina friends listening right now. I am slightly glad I don't live there anymore. Um, anyway, uh, so then yeah, you went. Uh, Went to college? Did you? Did you? Or sorry, you went to college at Yale. But before we get to that, did you go to high school in a couple different places, or did you? Were you able to stick through high school in like all four years in one place? Uh, almost. So I, I went uh, to a year of uh, high school at this great place in Ann Arbor, Michigan, called Community High. That was um, very kind of post sixties hippy dippy. Uh, there was, I think, the theater class was called People Piles. It was very get in touch with your, you know, inner child. Uh, and I uh, then I spent three years at Andover. Yeah, Community High school. sounds like the title of a of a sitcom. It, it would have been a really good one. The the teachers smoked pot with the students in the fire uh, halls. But you could take <laughs> as many classes at University of Michigan as you wanted as a high school student. So it was it was very it was great for the self motivated. Uh, you know, and if you were a kid who liked to, you know, smoke pot by the the gym, that was also a great place for you. So uh, that kind of, I bet that answers some of my questions later about why you decided to stage uh, Midsummer Night's Dream with all the set upside down. But we'll we'll get into that. We'll get into that later on. Um, but uh, so you went to Yale. You ended up attending Yale for math and English. Yeah. So what uh, I did. Uh, lots of theater there as well, but uh, and I was I was committed to a, a hardcore academic education while I had the time in college. So, yeah, I uh, did both math and English, and also probably 
acted in and directed 15 or 16 shows when I was there. Oh, so you started directing in college then? I did. Or even, I could even back it up to high school. I, uh, I think I directed three or four things when I was at Endeavor. So when, it, when, I guess, when you were involved with these productions, why did directing speak to you more than acting? You said, you just mentioned a second ago you were acting too, but like, did you, you did both, but which one, which, I mean, how did you know that directing was more for you? I loved acting and I still love the acting process. It's a lot of why I love making theater, but I was never a very good actor, sadly. Uh, I think if I had been a great actor, I, I might've tried to go down that road longer. Um, but I was all, sort of always in my head and even on stage, I was, I think always trying to think about, okay, what should I be doing? What does this look like from the audience's point of view? You know, I was, I was sort of always thinking about the direction, even while I was in the scene. Uh, so it seemed, uh, it seemed wiser to put myself in that chair. Uh, it's also, there was like so much theater energy when I was at Yale. I mean, there's the Yale undergraduates are putting on plays in the dining halls and in the squash courts and, um, there's a real kind of precursor movement to a lot of the site-specific theater that's happening now mm-hmm. that I love. There was just theater bursting out of every crevice on that uh, on that college campus. Um, so there was a it was a really fun time to um, be thinking about you know uh, directing and where can you put a play. I did a Hamlet in the library, the main library of the school. Um, so that all the words, 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 and all the books were just kind of coming off of the shelves, and that was incredible fun. And there was amazing people when I was a uh, uh, an undergrad at Yale. Uh, Jodie Foster was there, and director Tina Landau, and Lisa Peterson, and uh, Michael Servers was there when I was there. It was a really great hmm. group of people making theater. Uh, what kind of show do you put in a squash court? Uh, so a. a, a, a Probably five squash sports have been converted into little black box theaters where they have a little audience permanently set up in there. And a lot of times you'll do um, part of the show on the sort of floor and what would normally be the visitor gallery is a second story staging. It actually is kind of perfect for Shakespeare and it kind of looks like the original globe a little bit huh. in a micro way. Wow. Well, I, I would have never, I mean, I guess it makes sense. It's, you know, it's a squash court is kind of a white box, but then you just paint the walls and there you go. I actually broke my wrist doing a production of the Scottish play, hurling myself from a second story viewing gallery down to the floor. And uh, uh, so I, I have both good and bad memories <laughs> performing in squash courts. Wow. Uh, so what did you actually graduate with? Like what, what degree? Uh, English with a minor in math. Okay, so you did you did follow through with that, and then did, do you feel like you are using that? I mean, and I guess I'm leading into a question of of what sort of formal training did you get as a director? I do think that uh, math and music have an incredible amount in common. You know, it's it's amazing how many scientists and mathematicians are also uh, amateur musicians. Like, there's a lot of I think sympathy between. Um, you know, reading music and uh, and solving a math problem, actually. So I do think that that's really working on musicals keeps using some of my math skills. I also put myself through college and paid off my high school uh, student loan debts by being a computer programmer. Um, although uh, everything I knew about computer programming is um, on the in the trash heap now. Oh, and course. every 10-year-old is a better computer programmer than I am now. 
<laughs> what languages did you learn? Uh, I programmed in Fortran, uh, Basic, Pascal, and COBOL. Wow. Did you ever get as basic as assembly? Uh, I, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I took a, a course, I think, in, in assembly language. And I was early for the hardcore geeks uh, listening. Uh, I think I, I was one of the first people to learn C++. One of my very, very early days of C++, which is actually the only language that still kind of people are still programming in, I think. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, C++ is heavily I remember used. when programs were... Uh, you could the Commodore PET was a personal computer, and you mm-hmm. could you could put your program on a cassette tape, and uh, that was how you stored it. Oh yeah, yeah. I took like a, a I think it was an elementary school. I did a summer school class of programming, and we always we would save on a cassette tape every every afternoon when it was over. And I somehow mine did save, and I lost my whole rocket ship program that I was making. So, and I still haven't recovered. Maybe you're going to find it someday, and like suddenly that'll be like the new video game <laughs> of, your, of that cassette thing. I don't even think it was a game. It was just learning, like, you know, you change one variable and it affects your, your velocity. You know, it's just things you do yeah. for kids. Um, anywho, okay. So uh, you come out of Yale with, a, with an English, English degree and a, with, a, with the math on the side. And then how did you start getting into professional directing? Uh, I was an intern at Playwrights Horizons in New York City for mm-hmm. a year and uh, assistant director that year on Driving Miss Daisy, the first production, um, with Morgan Freeman and Dana Ivey and really amazing cast. Uh, so that was very formative for me. Uh, this was the, I got out of college in 86, so there was, uh, I was one of the, the early uh, Drama League directors, which is a program that's still around and uh, doing great. Um, I had one of those NEA TCG directing fellowships to move around the country and meet people and see what they're up to and observe rehearsals. So uh, I had a couple of years of uh, um, grant-supported assistantships before I was directing on my own. Hmm. And so you were doing, okay, you were doing that. And and how does that process work to become a director? Um, because this is, I've always been curious about this because as an actor, it's always very apparent you you are sent the script and you go in, you learn, you hopefully learn your lines, you go in, you, you make your choices, and then you go in and hopefully you impress the director. But the director is already there, right? So how do you get there in the first place? How do you, how do you get chosen by by who? Who chooses the director and how, how does that happen? So almost always it's the artistic director of the theater who's making the choice. Um, if you have a strong relationship with the author on a new play, that's also often a route, uh, a route in often, um, a, if a director and a writer have gone to grad school together or something, um, that writer will help create the first opportunity for that director to, to direct in a professional context. But there's so many different, there's as many different routes into the director's seat, um, as there are people, you know, whether you come through assistant directing, whether you come through writing, whether you come through acting and then have your first directing job, um, or just force of will. I mean, I, I do think the people who wind up in the profession are people who are incredibly tenacious and are able to tolerate working in, you know, basements and squash courts <laughs> for a while before it's actually a, a, a paying gig. Well, and that was true for me too. So yeah, you would call yourself a tenacious person. 
I, I definitely think I get uh, A plus for I, I'm like Trump. I'm going to give myself an A plus for <laughs> <laughs> you. You have performed very bigly in your past. I I, I can see that. I, I try to perform bigly whenever possible. <laughs> so just enjoy your confefe and uh, and yes, perform bigly. Um, I was also I, I was very much kind of multitasking. I, I worked at a at a bank for the first three years or so to continue to pay off loans. Uh, no kidding. A bank that no longer exists called uh, Manufacturers Hanover doing systems analysis for them. So uh, uh, I was, you know, basically doing uh, an internship during the day and then going to do computer programming at night. Did you have to audition for the internship or was it just like, yeah, we'll take anybody and see who's good? Uh, that, I would say uh, Plurit's Horizons at that point was quite voracious for um, interns to, um, you know, help the, keep the place going. So that, that wasn't... Uh, it was a great match, but um, they were they, the door was kind of thr- thrown wide open. Um, definitely, all the drama league and TCG. There's a lot of uh, application process, and I I actually love applications and test taking. So that was uh, that was exactly uh, uh, well suited to me. Wow. So then, walk me through walk me through your the, the the process of how you got your first Broadway show, which is which was Voices in the Dark in '99, right? Uh, wow, you have the whole thing in front of you. Um, so <laughs> I did my research. I, the first show I did, first full-length show I did in New York was at an off-Broadway theater called the WPA, um, which had an amazing um, couple of decades of work. Uh, and it was a Larry L. King play called The Night Hank Williams Died. Um, and I think I was 23 when I directed it. Wow. Um, and um, it got quite a nice Times review and moved to the Orpheum Theater for a commercial run. It was, I think, the show that was in the Orpheum right before Stomp took over the Orpheum for thir- three decades. Yeah. Um, so uh, I was a little bit lucky. The first show I ever did was well-received, had some um, uh, enough of a life uh, to help pay my rent for a couple of months. Uh, and that actually gave me a lot of injection of belief that uh, that career was possible if you stick with it. Right. And how, how from a financial standpoint, did our directors, uh, I guess the payment for a director, is that a, a pre-negotiated rate? Or is it like you, like we hear from actors, they'll get certain, or for film actors, they get points based on, you know, merchandise or box office sales or something. Is it the same with all creatives in the theater as well? <laughs> It's really not. Um, although I'm, maybe maybe there's people who are getting points on their merchandise, but uh, that's not me. Uh, <laughs> in general, uh, nonprofit theaters, regional theaters, off Broadway theaters have a amount that they can pay, and they pay everybody the same. And there's really very little negotiation. As you start to move toward Broadway, there's more room for negotiation because you know if you've earned your investor money back time and again, you start to be, uh, you know, I think worth a little bit more to the producers, but really until you hit Broadway, there's very little negotiation. It's what's called favored nations and, and you, you take what they have. Wow. So, so then how did you get, uh, voices in the dark then in 99? Um, so I, I would say that the, the things that led there, um, I did a Paul Rudnick play called Jeffrey that um, was started again at the WPA and went on to the Meta Lane and then kind of around the country and we made a film of it um, with Patrick Stewart and Sigourney Weaver and Brian Batt from uh, the original production on stage. So that was, Jeffrey was a real turning point for me and that was the same year I did um, Anna DeVere Smith's first play, Fires in the Mirror, 
uh, and a Claudia Shear play called uh, Blown Sideways Through Life. So I started to kind of have a um, off-Broadway kind of profile, and that was, I think, what jumped me to Broadway for the first time in Voices in the Dark. Nice. Which was a, a thriller. Uh, didn't have that much success when it opened, uh, truthfully, but it, I had a really amazing time working on it with Judy Ivey, who's a fantastic actor, and the writer John Peelmeyer I really love. There was a, a moment um, late in the show that it all took place kind of uh, in a cabin in the Adirondacks where you know terrible things are happening in a thriller kind of a way, and there's a jacuzzi in the living room, and you know that there's a, a bad thing has happened in that jacuzzi, but the central character does not know that yet. <laughs> and then late in the play, she opens the jacuzzi cover, and you know you imagine what she's seeing, and it's really terrible. So we're taking that moment, and we stop for a break. And one of the um, one of the investors, who I'm sure had a mafia past, comes up to me and says, uh, "Can I talk to you for a minute?" And I said, "Sure." And he goes, "Listen, when you look." in a jacuzzi and see a chopped up dead body. That's not the way you react. <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm actually in the room with someone who really knows what it feels like to look at a chopped up dead body. So uh, sometimes you never know where you're going to get your inspiration or, uh, you know, you're going to get truth checked. <laughs> um, I I don't know how I would have reacted in that scene. I would have think I... I would have just gone like, oh, oh, okay. So, would you like to show I us? Took notes. <laughs> Although finally, I realized, oh, well, you've seen a lot of dead bodies, and actually, this is her first. So, I'm not sure how useful it is, but I, I was interested in his experience of opening jacuzzis. That's that's funny. I I wonder. I, I've always wondered too. Like the director, um, were were you disconnected with the investors? The investors just happened to be there. So, it, it, I've in, I've interviewed uh, you know Dory Berenstein. As a you know, a producer um, on this podcast as well, and she's given me a lot of insight. I mean, the listeners and insight of what a producer does, and it sounds like, you know, she the produ- the production team hires hires the director, hires the investors. But do you, as a director, do you get to say, um, I want this mafia guy to invest in this show, or do you just like you take what you what you're handed? I'm usually not picking the investors, although I do think over time you do develop a group of producers who are excited about your work and tend to jump on board whatever the project is. But it's it's it is really the lead producers pick um, who are the investors more than the directors. Um, even though I now have a a field of people that have tended to work on the shows again and again. Right. Yeah. I was just curious. So then you've got Voices in the Dark in '99. Then in 2000, Rocky Horror Show. Yeah, and and I guess I don't know. I wouldn't. Would you call that a thriller? What what kind of genre do you call Rocky Horror? Um, science fiction transvestite rock concert. How's that? Like uh, <laughs> it? Um, I I, had, I was a huge Rocky Horror fan as a teenager. I would do the late night Saturday night. You know, I'd bring my water pistol and my toast and my newspaper and my rice and do all the kind of talk shop back to the screen. So I was. I, I, I pitched myself so hard for that project when uh, Jordan Roth uh, started talking about doing it uh, as a Broadway production um, and had such an amazing time with that cast. Uh, just Tom Stewart was spectacular in the lead and you know there was Daphne Rubin Vega and Joan Jett and Jared Emick and um, Alice Ripley, just like a fantastic, fantastic uh, Leah Delaria, this wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, and we did, we did Cavett as the narrator. So it was kind of a demented cast. Uh, <laughs> and we were doing this, um, having such a good time. Raul Esparza was in the original cast of, of, um, of that show. 
and we went on to do five or six different things together. Um, and it, it, it was running and had opened when nine 11 happened. Um, so it shut down for a while and then kind of came back for a, a second wave of performances. And I was really worried that, um, you know, the, the ridiculousness of the Rocky horror show was going to be badly suited to the moment of nine 11. What we actually found is people were so glad to get out of their homes, sit in a room with other people and like rediscover community together. Um, that it, you know, it played better than ever, um, you know, after those events, um, which I think was a lot about how hungry people just were for, art and community, um, regardless of what the story was. That's, that's really interesting. You said that uh, one of the earliest episodes on this podcast here was, I interviewed Nancy Opal and she told the story of, uh, actually, I can't remember if it was on mic. I think it might've been when we stopped recording. She told this great story about how you're in town was supposed to open on, on that, on nine 11. And, and obviously like they had a whole scene where they were going to throw people, they were throwing businessmen off a building and they just like shut it down. They cut that, they had to rework that whole scene like days, you know, within the the days when theater all went dark. But then when she was saying was similar to what you just said, that when people, they were worried about attendance, but people, they wanted to get out of their house. They wanted to come together and then, and just find something to laugh about again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, we were also in the middle of, uh, Rocky Horror had already opened, and um, I was working on three Paul Rudnick one acts down at Drama Department in the West Village, um, and it was about to open when 9-11 happened, and that too, we had to really retool it because there was a, a scene where um, one of the actors took the audience hostage you know, in the show, mm. and it did not seem well-suited to the moments uh, after 9-11, so we, we reworked um, quite a few just moments to... Um, you know, not be too, too triggering there. Right. So then moving on to 2002, The Smell of a Kill, what was that one? Uh, Smell of a Kill was a Michelle Lowe play. Um, three women. Uh, pull that, that play back out. I actually think that play would, in some of the current conversation about um, uh, gender in the kind of Me Too world, um, that play was very much a kind of um, three women's revenge fantasy against uh, three husbands who are um, really not behaving well. Um, and a uh, really smart, snappy play. Um, I also had uh, Claudia Shear in it. And uh, uh, through the various workshops and Broadway productions, Katie Finneran did one of them. Um, Jessica Stone was in one of them. It was, we had some really, really amazing actresses. Uh, and it was at the... Um, Helen Hayes, where I also went on to do Xanadu. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I guess I was trying, I'm trying to lead up to All Shook Up, which in 05. Uh, oh, excellent. Uh, yeah, All Shook yeah. Up was, uh, I just, I'd love, I still listen to the soundtrack, actually. Um, and that put Cheyenne Jackson on on my personal radar. Um, yeah, so I, I follow him now, but I think personally, I think I got, a, I think I got confused with Good Vibrations. Did Have you heard that? A little bit, yeah. 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 So, you know, the whole shaking thing, you know, Good Vibrations, obviously, the Beach Boys musical, shook, uh, confused with All Shook Up. And I think All Shook Up just, the people didn't want to, didn't, thought that was the Beach Boys musical, which, you know, let's talk about box office, uh, wasn't doing well. So I think All Shook Up suffered from that. But it's still... Yeah, no, there, there was, like, many moments, like, the the kind of press response to how did the, how do they feel about jukebox musicals and musicals that exist, you know, from a, are built around a catalog 
Um, there's certainly been amazing instances. I'm a, I think Jersey Boys is a beautiful, beautiful musical, and there's a bunch of ones that do this really, really well. Um, but they're always a tough sell with the press as well, I would say. Um, and I was really proud of that that musical. Like you, that was really my introduction to Cheyenne, who I as extraordinary and I've worked with several times. Uh, it was my, one of my first shows with Joe DiPietro, who I'm working with right now. He's uh, He also went on, he wrote the book for All Shook Up. He went on to write together with David Bryan, the book for Memphis, which I also directed. And mm-hmm. they were very Tony awarded for that, the two of them. And um, we're all sitting in a room now. I just stepped away on rehearsals, uh, on a break from rehearsals. We're um, in our final couple of days in the rehearsal hall on a new musical about Princess Diana. Oh, no kidding. Are you able to tell us what it's called? It's called Diana. (laughs) It's a straightforward (laughs) title. Uh, And it's very much about uh, the kind of triangular marriage between Diana, Charles, and Camilla, who, you know, Charles was in love with really even before he met Diana. Mm -hmm. But um, in those days, not in any way uh, allowed to marry her. And she was... uh, already married with children, uh, you know, and, you know, not particularly high born. Um, and it's interesting about the impact that Diana has had on that family, that how much has changed since when Charles was making his decision. And, you know, now Harry can marry Meghan Markle, right? An American, mm-hmm. people say. Wow. Yeah. And so the rehearsals are happening at, uh, in LA, right? La Jolla Playhouse? At, in uh, San Diego at La Jolla Playhouse. Oh, San Diego, I'm, I'm yeah. From my office. Uh, and the, in fact, all the actors just left on their lunch break, so I see uh, um, uh, dancer legs uh, uh, leaving in my window because my office is right <laughs> next to the rehearsal room. So this is a, this is a good segue to talk about La Jolla. Um, you were appointed artistic director in in '07, so that was uh, while Xanadu was on Broadway as well. Um, and you were, I assume, were based out of New York until that point, and then like how did how did the La Jolla come about? Um, so they were looking for an artistic director. Um, Des McAnuff had been the artistic director uh, at the Playhouse for most of 25 years. Really, he took two different stints with Michael Greif and Annie Hamburger um, here in the middle. Um, and when in, when Des left the first time in the 90s, I actually applied for the job because we've been fascinated by La Jolla Playhouse. I love their history. It really started out Gregory Peck and Dorothy McGuire kind of... Um, started it in the forties as a place for um, movie stars to, you know, come and do real acting on their summer breaks from shooting movies. Uh, and the, the kind of history of um, musicals that would go on to like have, have huge impact on the nation, like Jersey boys, like Tommy, the early modern Millie started here. And in my time, you know, come from away in Memphis and um, I think 30 some shows have moved from the playhouse to Broadway. So the mix of those shows that are going to have big impact and also this very restless, uh, adventurous kind of programming, just the new plays and the really um, adventurous, formally unexpected plays um, that have happened here through the years. I just, I really like that combination. Plus it's a beautiful place to be. I'm, I'm talking to you now and there's wind whispering through the palm trees. Do you enjoy living in in San Diego more than New York? Uh, oh, the more of that is a hard question because I I, I I have incredible love for New York as well, uh, and uh, I lived there I think twenty years before I came out to La Jolla. So I, I enjoy both in my life. But um, La Jolla is an extraordinary place, and uh, 
I guess we're talking in uh, end of January, beginning of February, and uh, it's uh, uh, being here rehearsing a new musical as opposed to being in the middle of the polar vortex is fantastic. You mean you don't like single digits as wind chill in the negative 20s? I'm not such a not such a fan. Although I am amazed at if you live in San Diego, you would think, given the fact that it's basically beautiful almost every day, that, that weather would cease to be a subject. No. Everyone talks about weather all the time in San Diego, constantly, <laughs> like the tiniest little weather variation, and everyone's talking about it. And you want to go like, why are you talking about the weather? You have none. There is no weather in San Diego. It's always nice. But I think it's a little bit to keep reminding yourself, hey, we're lucky enough to live in paradise. Yeah, well, it's, it sounds phenomenal. I've never actually been to San Diego. I've been to uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco many times, L.A. several times, but uh, San Diego is still on my list. So when I when I come out there... You have I'm an open invi- invitation. You could come to uh, early preview of Diana and check it out. All right. When, when do they go into previews? Uh, we're like three weeks out. Oh wow! Okay, maybe I can uh, I can make a swing a trip out. We can do some in person stuff. I'll see what I could do. I I appreciate that. So still speaking about uh, La Jolla and now being the artistic director, how does an artistic director? Uh, how do you choose your 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 lineup? How do you choose the season? So have an amazing staff. Uh, director of new uh, play development and producing director and uh, I guess about five or six people in the artistic department who. Um, read everything and see everything in the country, which I really admire. Um, I have a real interest and love for um, new plays and musicals. So in the last five years, everything has been either a world premiere or a second production where the authors are also working on it. Um, So we've really um, put our resources towards the development of the new and trying to be a cradle for um, the birth of a new, a new show uh, and exploring um, artists uh, voices who um, hopefully come back again and again, really like trying to be a loyal home to extraordinary artists is a real um, uh, priority for me. And uh, we do only six um, shows a year on subscription. So that's tended to be two musicals and four new plays and um, we've got beautiful spaces. We have four performance spaces. Um, and it's uh, started as a summer theater, but now year-round. So it's kind of a jigsaw puzzle of uh, figuring out what's the shape of our season and uh, what new um, authors do I think have something vital to say to the world right this minute. And, uh, you know, trying to make a, create a mix of um, plays, musicals, big, small family, politics, serious, goofy, you know, like trying to make sure that every time an audience member walks in the door, they have a really new experience of some kind. Hmm. So the the physical process to you, um, I pictured like a bunch of, of post-it notes all over the wall with your yeses, nos, and maybes. <laughs> I'm sadly very old school. There's not enough computers in the mix, uh, which is funny for someone who started out as a computer programmer. Yeah, right. It's very... Uh, three by five cards on a cork board, uh, kind of playing around with the grid, uh, and probably we start out with, uh, we get, I want to say 5,000 projects pitched our way wow. during the course of uh, season planning. Um, and we kind of boil those down to 80 or a hundred projects that seem, you know, the most interesting to us. And then there's a, 
excruciating winnowing process down to just six that we'll actually do. That's the hardest thing about, I mean, programming is incredible fun in every way, except you have to say no thousands of times for every one time you can say yes. And that's frustrating. Well, that sounds like th- everything in this business, really. I mean, cast- <laughs> casting directors and, and I guess, yeah. uh, uh, investors are carefully picking what they want to invest in as well. Is the, right. is the Playhouse, is it publicly funded or you take private investment? Um, it is a nonprofit, 501c3, um, uh, very much on the philanthropic, um, supported by a mix of what we bring into the box office and charitable contribution from individuals and corporations and foundations. Um, on certain plays that have a real... Um, more epic in scope, um, uh, like Diana, for instance, there's actually um, sometimes enhancing producers who we will partner with um, to, to um, be able to afford a show on this um, scale and scope, um, but very much uh, a nonprofit theater. Hmm. And with the current Trump administration, I'll go there for a second, uh, and he's talking about potentially cutting the arts, uh, funding some of the funding to the arts. Is this going to affect you at all? Uh, if um, the NEA was was significantly cut, it absolutely would affect La Jolla Playhouse, like like every regional theater in, in the country. Um, even more though than like, you know, I think all of us sometimes get a grant from the NEA. It's 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 not a spectacularly large endowment um, compared to the gross national product, but symbolically super important to the NEA, right? Like mm-hmm. the the idea that arts are a crucial part of um, a richly lived life and that they're going to uh, be part of um, what we prioritize as a, as a culture that they're funded in the schools and arts and education. You know, those are um, so important to me. And I think so important to so many people in our audience and so gently entrenched in the national conversation. You know I mean? Like, it, it that's the thing that gets discussed getting slashed every single year. And it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter who's in the white house. You know, there's the, the NEA is constantly up on the chopping block. Um, as is NPR, as, as there are a lot of, um, arts funding at the national level. Um, there's much less state funding than there was once upon a time in America. So, um, you know, I, arts leaders like myself, I think, um, care passionately about um, public funding of the arts um, and mostly care um, that Americans um, are encouraged to um, include art at the center of their lives. Um, and, you know, I think you and I and all the people in theater spend their lives um, in, in, in um, this uh, sort of delightful, uh, crazy sandbox of theater mm-hmm. because we think that telling stories uh, matters and that um, I, I, analyzing, discovering, understanding the human spirit and the current moment we're living in and the community that comes together around art, um, a passion for that is, I think, why most of my friends do it. That's certainly why I'm in it. It sounds very therapeutic. <laughs> yes. I have a friend who's an art therapist, and uh, and I do actually think that what she does and what I do are not that uh, far apart. <laughs> I, well, yeah, that that actually kind of touches back to what we were talking about nine eleven. That you know, people want to come through and come back together and find community and find a sense of belonging. So I, yeah, I totally see that. That makes sense. 
I definitely, when I'm, there's a lot of very political material um, being created right now um, by playwrights. Um, and I tend to um, gravitate toward the material that not just identifies a problem because there's many right now in our, in our world, but also um, tries to look at how might we bring people together to solve the problems. Um, and I definitely think that that's one of the extraordinary rewarding things about the time I've spent on come from away is it's a story about community and the value of generosity and, um, what it's like to, um, take care of each other. Um, and I think, uh, that, uh, at certain points in human history, that might uh, seem like an optional message. And I'd say, if you turn on the television news every night, that now seems like a necessary thing to talk about. I would totally agree with that. And that, that is actually, I was going to segue into, into come from away. Um, but you did it for me. So thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Come from away. Uh, of course, is still playing on Broadway, is doing incredibly well, and just started a tour, right? Yeah, we've actually got four companies um, up and running right now. There's um, uh, nine of the original 12 actors um, who are with it at La Jolla, Seattle, Ford's Theater, and Toronto on the way to Broadway are still in the Broadway company. Hmm. And there's a all Canadian uh, um, acting company uh, uh, running in Toronto. Um, and there's a national tour uh, running around the U.S. and some Canadian cities. And as of three days ago, we just started previews for a West End UK company. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was the, the West End. So this is, we're recording this February 1st. So through the magic of time travel, this will air <laughs> later. So three days ago won't mean a lot. Um, I always use the magic of time travel. It's a lot of fun. Magic of podcast podcast time travel. Uh, but yeah, Come From Away, it, do, it tells an incredible story. And the first time I, I heard the concept, I said, well, if they've made a musical out of 9-11, this is going to be really weird. And I went, and again, one of my all-time favorite musicals I've seen, and I've gone back and seen it several times, and it, it just, it, it starts, and it's 90 minutes, and there's no intermission, and you barely, you barely have a chance to clap uh, uh, that is that, what you've just described is very much what we were going for, which is um, that there's I think there's only three applause points in it. Other than that, it really um, is a um, a train that keeps um, keeps going. It's it's about the um, the the week um, starting on uh, Tuesday night eleven um, when America shut its airspace and all the international flights. Um, that were in transit across the Atlantic and the Pacific had to ground somewhere, not in the U.S., um, and many of them landed in Canada. 38 flights landed in this tiny town in Newfoundland called Gander, which happens to have a big international airport left over from the days when you had to refuel to get across the Atlantic. So this town of 10,000 people suddenly had 7,000 visitors, and it's very much a story about just what happened in that week and how the people of that town, despite barriers of language, race, nationality, religion, really just stopped their lives and took care of these people from away or that come from aways, as they, they call them in Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, no, we're, I've now been working on that show for, I want to say, five years. Um, and uh, it's one of the richest experiences I've ever had in the theater. I, it's 
it's an amazing story to tell. The people, the true people who the stories are based on, um, really amazing, inspire me all the time. And they're very much with the production. Like there, I think Beverly Bass, the pilot, who's one of the people who stranded there, was the first female pilot of an American a commercial airline in mm-hmm. America. She was the first woman who flew for American Airlines. And um, I think she's seen the show 252 times as a wow. last count. Um, I think I've seen it more times, but not that many more. <laughs> uh, so the, the actual people are in our lives and are like, you know, wherever we do it, they can sort of come and are part of uh, the experience. And I, I've never had that experience before of doing a show um, where the the show and real life keep on interweaving in that way. That yeah, I I talked to Chad Kimball recently too, and he said something very very similar. Is just that they're actual friends. The the character, the people yeah. that they are that they are recreating on stage are actually friends with these people. Yeah, I'm in I'm in my office right now. There's a scarf uh, that one of the real people um, uh, knitted. Uh, there's kind of pictures and memorabilia from all the yeah all the real people. Um, and, uh, you know, they're also doing incredible things in their life, kind of philanthropically and raising money for Gander, uh, and for the schools there and the charities there. Um, we had on our way to Broadway, we stopped and did two concerts in the ice rink in Gander, which they turned into a giant refrigerator on the week of nine 11. Um, and the experience of doing a show about a small town, where the entire 2,500 person audience each show was the people of the town. So you're telling their story. And I've never had an experience like that where they sort of, they went from like disbelief to like wild laughter to tears. And by the end of the show, about maybe 10 minutes before the end of the show, they just started to scream at the stage. There was this wall of sound coming at the show. And the actors were like doing the show like back to this wall of sound of like appreciation. It was one of the most emotional theater experiences I can imagine. Wow. Oh man. Do you have any recordings of this or any, any footage of it? Uh, there's lots of still footage. Um, I guess there's certainly clips from it, from that, from that performance. I would have, Uh, I would have loved to have seen that. It was incredible. It was, uh, it was definitely a highlight. And And even the, like, you know, like the, the follow spots and the, the, you know, the backstage sound guys, like everybody that you talk to, like that, that moment will come up and everybody will just start to well up because it was just the feeling in that room. Um, and the way that a story mattered and was potent in that room at that moment was unforgettable. Hmm. And, and it's public now. It was announced back in November, 2017 that there's plans to turn it into a feature film. Yeah. Yes, there absolutely are. Um, no solid dates yet, but uh, we're working toward um, a shoot that would um, um, do all of its exteriors in Gander itself, which will be really fun to do. I get a you get to do like uh, what Stan Lee did and like get the real people to kind of have cameos throughout the background. I cannot speak about the state of the screenplay, uh, which David and Irene <laughs> uh, have been working very very hard on this year. Um, uh, but uh, I think. Um, the real people will certainly be involved in some way. I sure hope so. They 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 should deserve to get something. They were incredible people. Are incredible people. They're incredible people, and they're they're uh, inspirational and also friends to everybody who's who's made that show. Cool. So um, 
we're, we'll wrap up here soon. And before we do, uh, I want to I want to quote you from an interview that you gave to uh, Playbill in March 2018. You said, "There's nothing I would want to be doing now other than making theater." I think it's an extraordinary answer to some of the complicated fractures in our world right now. So on this end quote, on this podcast, we find ourselves talking with, uh, I talk with the guests a lot about the healing power of theater and, and you and I even talked about, you know, the community and the sense of belonging. Um, what is it that you find about theater that you think is the extraordinary answer? Um, I think actors and playwrights are doing something incredible. Um, the honesty that an actor brings to the table, um, the complete, um, every great piece of playwriting is an expression of that playwright's soul, worldview, and self. So these, like everybody in theater is like putting themselves completely emotionally, vulnerably on the line. And that's in service of telling a story that's true about people and the world that we share. And that, it's like some some Greek uh, smart person uh, said what the proper uh, study of man is man. That's, I'm sure, a butcher of that uh, phrase. But the idea that, like, is there a better way to spend our lives than trying to understand who we are and what we're capable of? That seems to me like a really high purpose and one that in a world... uh, that uh, is as frustrating as the one we're living in right now. Um, there's something so positive about trying to understand who we are. Yeah. Um, that I, uh, uh, I said it in the quote, but I'll, uh, I'll say it to you. Uh, I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing. <laughs> what would you like to see come out of the art form in the next few years? Um, well, I, I love the, the immersive and site-specific uh, work that's happening. We do, a, at the Playhouse, we do a Without Walls festival uh, of site-specific every two years. Um, and I just think the artists who are um, challenging the boundaries between the audience member and the artist, that's such great work happening there. Um, and it's not a new idea, right? I mean, the 70s had happenings, and um, there's been kind of street theater and public art forever. But the kind of ways in which the kinds of plays that are getting made, a lot of the impulses that are happening on the internet, this public art, um, it feels like a moment where art is not just for the elites. It's really, there's something radically democratic about it right now. And I think that's really exciting. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm so impressed by the work that like when Manuel was doing, like bringing Hamilton to Puerto Rico, both um, because that's a place that's very meaningful to him, and also he thinks that there's uh, funding issues and political questions about Puerto Rico that are worth shining a spotlight on. Um, I think the ways in which the theater is interacting with the exact moment of now um, is what's most exciting to me. And and the, the, the theaters that are programming plays that have to be done right this year and that could be really political plays, or it could be a story about a family or a story about a, um, a, a potent story about an individual, but the idea that theater speaks to now and theater speaks to um, the future that's just coming into being. That's the work that's really exciting to me. I, I love that answer. That's beautiful. 
So the three standard questions that I normally ask all guests on the podcast here. First one is, what motivates you? Um, telling a great story. Telling a story that matters. And what advice would you give to your younger self and or younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? Um, listen to yourself, know what kind of stories are important to you and don't let anything get in the way of telling them. (laughs) And last question here, if you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what show would you see? Hamlet. Uh, I know that's like a really, really like old school answer, but I, having done one production of that play, I think I could do a new production of that play every year for the rest of my life and keep uh, discovering radically new things in it. Um, I I think one of the reasons that Shakespeare has remained so constantly produced for so many centuries is that there's a, there's a, a resonance and a complication uh, and a, a, a depth of characterization and metaphor and meaning um, that is rich to engage with as a director. Wow. That's great. I thought you were going to say Hamilton, which several other people have said as well. But Hamlet, I, I would agree. That's That would be a great one to do. And I, actually, I want to throw Maybe one. We could do it. We could for, spend the rest of our lives in a repertory between Hamilton and Hamlet. like the ham. <laughs> just, just the ham theater. But I want to. I want to throw one more. You can only serve ham at the at the (laughs) gift shop. (laughs) I want to throw one more question at you, real quick. That just popped in my head. Um, If uh, is there any actor, actor or actress that you would love to work with that you that you never have living living or not? Um. Oh my god! I'm giving. I feel like I'm only giving the most standard answers, but. uh, doesn't want to work with Meryl Streep. I, I, I never have, and I would uh, I would consider uh, myself fulfilled if I did. Also, Judy Dench. Those are two actresses that uh, I think um, can do no wrong. <laughs> I, I would personally love to do anything with them as well. So those are good answers. Um, so on online, uh, we should just connect with you at lahoyaplayhouse.org. And can we make donations on the website there as well? Absolutely. Cool, cool. So if you're here, if you listen to this now, you love supporting the arts, love theater, go to lahoyaplayhouse.org and please uh, help support. And if you want more of me and the theater podcast, you can find me theater underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter, facebook.com slash official theater podcast. Of course, listen and subscribe via the theaterpodcast.com. You can send me email feedback at feedback at the theaterpodcast.com. This is produced by Jillian Hockman. And thank you as always to Jukebox the Ghost for our lovely podcast music. Christopher Ashley, thank you so much. I have enjoyed this conversation immensely. Me too. I had a great time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 